This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. This podcast brought to you by My Patriot Supply. Did you miss the chance to get a 72-hour emergency food supply with free shipping for just 10 bucks? What's wrong with you? Don't worry. Call 888-411-7440 right now. They have a few left, and they're selling out fast. 888-411-7440. What are you waiting for? A disaster? Do it right now. 888-411-7440. And go for Mike Slater in 3, 2, 1. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. He says that Taliban came to me at first and told me, hey, give us this soldier. We will go about our way once you hand him over. I told him, this is our culture that he's in my house now. I cannot turn him over to you. And to have this guy risk his life and his child's life and the women and children in this village, it's a much bigger, broader thing. All the things Marcus was talking about, discipline and code of honor and dedication, Gulab had all of these things. Who would have thought these two guys would be lucky enough to find each other? What would they have done to Marcus if you had given them to We, we know for sure they would kill him. There's only one reason why Marcus walked out of there, you know. To me, that just carries a lot of weight. Gula basically said, this is my village, and if I tell this man I will protect him, I will protect him, or I will die. Why are you doing this for There's a lot of people out there that love people and want to help people and care. And I just found that so inspiring and gave me so much hope. Coming out of the gate strong. A Saturday after Thanksgiving. How are you, Slater Crusaders? America's the greatest country in the world. Hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. I was sick the last few days, so uh, my Thanksgiving was spent either in bed or in the couch, and it was magical. <laughs> it was great, but healthy enough to hang out for a few hours here and then right back to bed. Uh, we got a few movies lined up for this evening's festivities. One of them, and may I suggest to you, uh, Lone Survivor. Have you ever seen the movie yet? If you haven't seen the movie, I mean, come on. Uh, or certainly read the book. That right there was a little feature made by the producers of Lone Survivor, which is the story of Marcus Luttrell. Uh, so in that movie there is Mark Wahlberg, uh, and then there's the movie's director, and then there was this guy, Mohammed Gulab. Now, Mohammed Gulab, if you've seen the movie or read the book, uh, he was the Afghani man who found Marcus Luttrell nearly dead and protected him from the Taliban. Saved his life. No doubt about it, Marcus Luttrell would be dead uh, if it wasn't for this man, Mohammed Gulab protecting him from the Taliban who wanted uh, him to die. So Mohammed Gulab, they brought him to America to oversee the making of the movie. So you heard a little bit from him right there as well. I want to play two clips here. Uh, a couple of days ago, I had the opportunity to talk with the author of Lone Survivor, the author of the book. Um, he has a new book out called The Lion of Sabre. Lion meaning the head, and uh, like the head of, and then Sabre is the name of this village where Gulab was from. So that's, that's Gulab. He's the lion of Sabre, the head of this village. 
I absolutely loved talking with Patrick. He's fantastic and has such a passion for this story. Um, I just want to play a couple clips here from the interview, and, and you'll get, you'll get uh, the important stuff here. Uh, this first clip here, clip two, guys, um, I don't know if my question's in here or not, but I asked, I asked Patrick, wh- oh, let, me, let me give one quick backstory, I'm sorry. So Patrick and uh, the author and, and Marcus Luttrell obviously came, became very close friends during the writing of the book. Some time went on, and Patrick's from England, and he got a call from Marcus, and Marcus said, I got gulab in my house <laughs> right now. And Patrick's like, what? And Marcus said, fly here tomorrow, and you have two weeks to spend with Gulab. So he got on the plane the next day, flew to the Texas ranch, uh, Marcus's uh, Texas ranch, and spent two weeks with Gulab and an interpreter, learning everything he could about, about this man from Sabray, Afghanistan. So this question I asked Patrick is, is why didn't Mohammed Gulab hand Marcus Luttrell over to the Taliban. Here's what he said, clip two. When Gulab found Marcus, he was with two friends. They were in the pasture above the village. They came upon this rocky area alongside a waterfall, and there, lying on the ground, was the dying Marcus Luttrell. Forehead split from end to end, nose broken, shot twice, shoulder injured, trousers blown off, uh, leg, left leg, thigh, blown to hell and full of shrapnel, and three broken vertebrae in his back. Couldn't stand, couldn't do anything. He was very quietly dying. And Gulab walked up to him. He said, I thought he might be dead. He said, but he's holding this damn great machine gun. He said, I touched the left-hand side of his neck with my three middle fingers to feel for a pulse. And he said, and as I touched him, he was surrounded by a bright white light, and I did not understand it. And for the only time in my life, never before, never since, even though I pray five times a day, I heard the voice of Allah. It was sonorous, it was clear, and the voice said to me, Mohammed Gulab, you will defend this man with your life. What are you talking about? Are you That's s- what he said. What? Well, what did Marcus say? I heard the voice of God for the only time when he made my, sure my rifle never left me. Even after I'd fallen a thousand feet down a mountain, my gun was at my feet. And as he said in Lone Survivor, I heard the voice of God. Now, there are these two people both warriors, they're not priests, and both of them said exactly the same thing. For the only time in my life, I heard the voice of God. And Gulab later said to the head of the Taliban army, threatening him yet again, I obey only Allah. I fear only Allah, certainly not you. And I will never give up the American. And who the hell do you think you are? You're nothing but a gangster. I mean, we're dealing with a damn tough man. And he says he heard the voice of Allah. And you'd say to Marcus, you know, do you believe that? Marcus would say, are you kidding? If you've been through what I went through, it's about the only thing you would believe. 
<laughs> love it. Uh, let me play one follow-up to that. That was um, one of the first questions I asked uh, Patrick. Uh, this was the last thing that I asked him. Clip three. Lesson, Patrick. Um, can we learn from Gulab that we can apply to our lives here in 2015 America? A, one of the main life lessons that we can all learn is that Gulab is now going to have a... a Good life. He is being looked after. Marcus and his father-in-law, who's a very wealthy guy, are helping him with a house inside um, a, a a a compound there, which he's going to be protected by American forces. In America, or, or in America or Afghanistan? In Afghanistan, in Asadabad, near the village, Interesting. where he can still go and run his timber business and visit his friends and his family. But through everything Gulab did, everything he risked on the word of his God, how he sees it, everything, he always did the right thing. No matter what, he did what was right. You couldn't buy him. You couldn't coerce him. You couldn't threaten him. He did the right thing. And his view is that if you do the right thing, Allah will ensure that things come out all right for you. And Marcus said it first to me. He said he obeyed his God and listened, and I obeyed mine. And I'm not altogether sure they're not one and the same God. <laughs> so there's there's no doubt that God's involved there, right? I mean, th- how did these two men... Think about this. Of all the two people in the world, of all the villages... In Afghanistan, of all the Navy SEALs, Marcus Luttrell and Mohammed Gulab are the two who met. Two men with a code of honor and a, and, a, and, a, and a steadfastness of loyalty unmatched by maybe anyone else in the world. These are the two men who met. If anyone else had found Marcus Luttrell first, then he would be dead. Amazing. Just do the right thing. I'm inspired by Gulab. I really am. Look what he was able. It, it, the Taliban came to him and said, "Gulab, you. I'm going to kill you. I'm going." The Taliban said, "I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill your wife. I'm going to kill your kids. I'm going to kill everyone in this town unless you give us the American." And Gulab said, "No. Uh, th- there's no. Nothing has ever pressured me in my life that much. <laughs> do you know what I mean? I've never experienced that amount of pressure." But Gulab did. So gosh, this just tells me even when the pressure is great, heck, to the meaning the end of your life, perhaps. It doesn't matter. Never violate your honor. Never violate your honor. Just always do the right thing. And if we're going to be honest here for a second, that that's you know, sometimes I say to myself, you know, Slider, uh, you know, you, you'll be an honorable person. On the big things, you know what I mean. The, you know, when the time comes for the to be honorable for a big important thing, well, then I'll then I'll be ready. But there's no need to be honorable about the little things. I mean, it's the big ones that matter. So sure, if I needed to defend someone's life, then I would step up and be the person. But um, I mean, gosh, it's easy just to fib a little bit on this thing. It's easy not to pay this person back or call this person back or 
uh, do the right thing here. Because these are just little things, right? But the big ones, oh, then I'll be ready. <laughs> do that all the time. But gosh, that's wrong. We know that's wrong. You have to be honorable about the little things before you'll ever be trusted to be honorable with the big things. And I don't have a prayer of being honorable about the big things if I'm not honorable all the time, even with the little things. And if I ever want to be as honorable as Muhammad Gulab, I have to be honorable about the little things as well. And then maybe one day I'll have the opportunity to defend the life of someone else like Gulab did to Marcus. And that is the ultimate honor to be trusted with. one 93 I want to come back. We got a lot more to do, but I just want to play one last clip that we didn't have time for. And this was how the story of Lone Survivor even happened. Meaning, like, how do we know about it? Because Navy SEALs were never allowed to tell their story. How do we even know this story? One last 90-second uh, clip from, from the author of Lone Survivor. Um, that I guarantee you will make you smile. Uh, the book, again, is called uh, Lion of Sabray, S-A-B-R-A-Y, The Lion of Sabray, the story of uh, Mohammed Gula. Good stuff. one 888 Slater Radio on Twitter, Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network. This podcast brought to you by My Patriot Supply. Did you miss the chance to get a 72-hour emergency food supply with free shipping for just 10 bucks? What's wrong with you? Don't worry. Call 888-411-7440 right now. They have a few left, and they're selling out fast. 888-411-7440. What are you waiting for? A disaster? Do it right now. 888-411-7440. You're listening to Mike Slater. Slater, we've got a lot to do today, but I want to play uh, one last clip here. This is the author of uh, Lone Survivor, the story of Marcus Luttrell. Um, and his newest book, The Lion of Sabre, which is great. Um, but I just want to play this, uh, this quick part here about uh, explaining how the story happened. Here it is. Well, Marcus came back uh, from the battle in Af- Afghanistan, where his three uh, teammates were all killed. And the helicopter full of people going to save him were also killed. And he was the only one who got out. And when he returned to America, he asked permission to write his book that would, in effect, lionize his three uh, buddies who died. Two of them, you know, close friends. Mm -hmm. And they immediately said, the Navy, you can't do that. It's classified. No uh, special forces in America are allowed to write books. It's classified information, all of it. So they all said no. But no one wanted to be the person who did say no. <laughs> and so they passed it up the line. And it got to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, who said, well, I think no, he can't write the book. Mm, but I don't want to be the person to say so. <laughs> this has to go to Mr. Rumsfeld. So it went to Mr. Rumsfeld who said, well, the answer is obviously no. We can't have people writing books. Um, but I don't want to be the one who actually <laughs> says that. <laughs> I think I would prefer it to go to the Oval Office. Come on. And to everyone's amazement, Marcus's fellow Texan, George Bush, said, I think it's about time 
this country had a hero. Tell the boy to write his book. <laughs> That's awesome, Patrick. So, back in, so we're back to the Navy. He said, well, we give you a lawyer to protect you because this is quite t- tense stuff and very, very serious and classified information. We get you a lawyer. So they got to the lawyers. Lawyers said, we'll look after you. Don't worry about that. But you have a problem. You don't have anyone to write it. So everyone agreed they'd never thought about that. And someone said, well, there's an English guy called Patrick Robinson who's written several fiction books about Navy SEALs, but has a pretty good reputation. Nobody's cross with him, and he hasn't upset anybody. Uh, we better get in touch with him. He said, well, how do we know how to do that um, since he lives in England? And one of the lawyers said, I have a friend who was uh, born in Brooklyn with me, and he is in the literary world in London, and I'm going to call him. And he did, and he said, I'm trying to find this Patrick Robinson character. And Ed Victor said, that will take approximately three minutes because I'm his agent. <laughs> That's great. So when you... And he called me and uttered the phrase, I am about to offer you the book you have waited to write all of your life. Wow. And I went to Houston to meet Marcus the next day. He met me at the airport. That's uh, isn't that amazing. That's that's how that happened. Think of all the things that had to come together for that to happen, for us to know the story of Marcus Luttrell and Muhammad Gulab, for that matter. Just fantastic. And how about George Bush saying, you know what? It's about time that America has a hero. Tell the boy to write his book. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, I want to come back in the next segment here and play a clip of uh, someone who's running for president. So a Thanksgiving tradition on uh, my local show is to read some of the uh, proclamations from Thanksgiving from our earlier, our founding fathers and, and early presidents because they are some of the most religious writings you'll ever read from our founding fathers. If you read stuff today, if you read the presidential proclamations today, it's like, you know, happy Turkey Day. You know, that's it. Have a great day off. Enjoy football. See you later. That, that's, the pro, that's the proclamation today. But if you go back to 1777, you know, Washington and Adams, and, um, the, first, the first person to draft the, the, the person to draft the first Thanksgiving proclamation was Richard Henry Lee. Um, every state nationwide, it's crazy. They're the most, thank, the, the most uh, religious writings ever. They actually didn't call it Thanksgiving. It was called a day of Thanksgiving and praise. Thanksgiving from the jump was a religious holiday. I'll give you just one short example here. This is from uh, 1798. This is the Thanksgiving proclamation signed by President John Adams. He said, today should be a day of solemn humiliation. So just humbling yourself. Fasting, (laughs) which is the opposite of what it did yesterday. And prayer. Humbleness fasting, and prayer. Is that what our Thanksgivings are today? Gosh, Glenn had a great post on Facebook. Gosh, let me see if I can pull it up quick enough. Uh, Where is it? There we go. Glenn Beck. I think it was today. Maybe it was yesterday. Ah, sorry. I'll have to find it. Um, But he he sort of touched on this same point here. We were totally backwards. You saw the video, I'm sure, of the, the people diving and ripping vegetable steamers out of people's arms. 
what? What is happening here? Um, he said, a day of solemn humiliation, fasting, and prayer that the citizens of these states, abstaining on that day from their customary worldly occupations, offer their devout addresses to the Father of Mercies. And they go on. It's that stuff <laughs> for the first you know, 150 years of our history. Uh, a presidential candidate, I think, did something the other day, didn't get any press, but showed a solemn humbleness. And I think it's worth making note of. And we'll talk about that coming up next. Mike Slater, show the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. Thanks for being here. It'll be a wonderful Thanksgiving. So we're talking about uh, a, a day of Thanksgiving and praise. Thanksgiving has always been a religious holiday since the very beginning. Only recently has become so, um, I don't even want to call it secular. It's not even quite right. I mean, and it's only getting worse. I mean, as Black Friday, which is just awful. <laughs> it's just like the worst part of us uh, is creeping into Thanksgiving. Um, yeah, it's becoming even, uh, it's not just secular, which is like neutral, it's like evil thing. <laughs> it's becoming, it's going the wrong, wrong direction. Um, so anyway, our founding father said that Thanksgiving should be a day of solemn humiliation. So humbleness, fasting, the opposite of what we do and prayer. Um, I want to play this clip here of Ted Cruz. This is Ted the other day. Uh, didn't get any publicity here, but I think this is, um, I think this is worthy of recognizing and celebrating. And hopefully other candidates will have the courage to, do the same. Here's Ted Cruz. Ted, you're a man of strong convictions and a man of deep spirituality. I've only asked this question once before, and it was here in Iowa a few months ago. When is the last time you asked God for forgiveness? And why? Well, I've asked God for forgiveness many times. Um, but is there one time that really stands out to you? You know, I would know one very difficult time was when I was in college. And when I was in college and then law school, uh, my parents got divorced. Now, I, I shared before the story of, of my father when I was a three-year-old leaving our family. He wasn't a Christian at the time, and he and my mom were drinking far too much, and, and thankfully someone invited my dad to a Bible study, and he became a Christian, and he came back to my mom and me, and it, it reunited our family. So, so I was blessed to be raised in a Christian home. When I was in college and really law school, my parents went through a divorce, and it was a hard thing. It was a very hard thing. I did not want my parents to get divorced. Um, and I was convinced I could stop it. Uh, I had a whole lot of sins at the time, including pride, that I could stop this. This would not happen. I remember I would type out page after page of scriptures from the Bible that I would send to my parents. And 
you know, one of the things all of us learn as an adult as we get older is that, you know, look, our parents are human beings and they're entitled to make flawed decisions. They're entitled to make mistakes. I thought it was a mistake at the time, but I wasn't the one entitled to make that decision. They were. And, and, and that's something that, that I have repented for the arrogance that I showed to my parents and that I was so upset that they were doing this. And I was convinced somehow I could stop it. And I think that was hurtful to my parents. They, they, they went forward with that decision. And, and since then, my parents remain actually, they're, they're now good friends. We have a wonderful relationship. Both my mom and my dad are wonderful grandparents to our little girls. But it was a hard thing when I was 22, 23 years old dealing with them because I wanted with all my heart to prevent it. And, and listen, I, that's not an easy thing. Uh, I think that is, that is so good. That, that's such a hard thing to do right there, that three-minute clip. First of all, it doesn't lend itself well to uh, our media of the day, which everything has to be you know, 10 seconds. And, 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 or, or how long is the vine? Six seconds? Three seconds? <laughs> uh, that's three minutes, so that's clearly not going to play. But uh, that's such a difficult thing to do publicly. Uh, to admit pride and arrogance. That's hard for anyone to admit, let alone someone running for president, when you're supposed to be boastful and powerful. And here you have to humble yourself, um, which seemingly to the world is the opposite of being powerful, even though it's the exact definition of uh, meekness. But um, I came across this quote the other day. J.R. Miller. He was a minister in the, in the late 1800s, and he was telling the story of an author who was writing a book, and he sent a copy to all of his friends, asking them to read it as critically as possible and to find every blemish and indicate every point where even the slightest improvement can be made. He, this is what he said. He wrote to his friends, quote, criticize remorselessly. For I want the new edition of my book to be as nearly perfection as possible. And J.R. Miller says, this is the way we should do with our life. No feeling of pride should ever keep us from welcoming the revelation of any flaw or imperfection in ourselves. Even the harsh and unkind criticism of enemies. We should patiently heed and consider. And if there be the smallest ground for them. Like if they're, if they're right, even in the littlest bit, we should extract the sweet out of the bitter for the blessing of our own life. Most of us at least have faults of which we ourselves are entirely unaware, but which our friends and neighbors can see without a magnifying glass. While therefore it requires some heroism to ask men to tell us our own faults, he is wise who does not shrink from the friendly scrutiny of those who wish only to do him good. Isn't that good? I love that. Let, let me read one last part here. Um, it's not pleasant to stand up to be criticized. No one likes to be told his faults. Yet when we think of it, we really ought to congratulate ourselves every time we learn of a new fault in ourselves. Not because we have such a fault, but because now we have discovered it. 
For the discovery of a fault is to everyone who is living, uh, uh, living worthily an opportunity for fresh conquest and for a new advance in the evolution of a noble character. So it's another opportunity for you to become the person that you want to be. To know of a fault in oneself should be instantly to challenge its continuance. Stop it. He who consents, he who agrees to keep and cherish in himself a sin or blemish of which he has become aware shows a pitiable weakness. He surrenders part of his life to an enemy. An enemy whom he acknowledges he cannot drive out and whom he leaves therefore in his stronghold to be a perpetual menace and peril to him in all the future. He permits a flaw to remain in his character, building it into the heart of the structure and leaving it there not only to be a blemish, but to be also a point of weakness at which sometime in great stress his life may break and fall. So Ted Cruz says, yeah, I was a jerk to my parents when they were getting a divorce. I was prideful and I was arrogant. And I've asked for forgiveness and I've repented over time. In that and other aspects of my life. That is such a genuine answer. And that is the kind of answer I want from any leader of mine. Someone who's confident and strong enough and humble enough that they would say, uh, give that type of answer. I was talking to, uh, have you guys, have you ever seen any speed painting done before? It was awesome. On uh, Veterans Day, I was hosting some event and there was a speed painter there and he was going to paint this painting and then auction it off for, for the military charity that we were supporting on Veterans Day. And uh, it was a black canvas. I don't know. It was pretty big. I don't know. What's big? How's this? Maybe five feet tall, three feet wide? I don't know. Something like that. Um, just a black canvas. And the music started playing. There was a band there. A band was playing. And he's throwing paint up on the, on the black canvas. And no one knows what it is. It's, a, it's abstract. And uh, about halfway through, I, I had the, the color scheme. I said, oh, I bet it's the Statue of Liberty. That would make sense, right? So he's, he's painting it. And, you're like, and everyone's like, oh, I think it's the Statue of Liberty. Maybe he's painting, painting, painting. He's dancing around. He's painting, throwing paint up on the thing. Pop, 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 pop. And then uh, he spins the canvas. He spins it around. And then it turns right side up. He was painting the thing upside down. And it turns right side up and just exploded on you. It was it was unbelievable. I've never seen a painting come to life like that. It was I've never I've never seen it like right at first it was like I think it's the Statue of Liberty, but it didn't quite look at it. Oh my gosh, she's looking and she's alive on the canvas. I'm not even exaggerating. Her eyes, her mouth, it was stunning. And he did it in probably four minutes. Unbelievable. Just gasps from the entire audience. So I said, I gotta have this guy on my show. So we got to talk to him a couple days after that. And about his passion and all this stuff. Really great story this guy has. But I said, how did you get so good? Right, basically. And he says, oh, I surrounded myself with people who are way better than me. <laughs> he said, I surrounded myself with, with artists who are way better than me, and I took their criticisms. It's hard to do. I was talking to a mentor of mine, and he was telling the story where just last weekend... He, um, well, a couple weeks ago, maybe a couple months ago, he had an idea for a company that he, he's uh, an advisor towards. And he's like, oh, I got this idea. And he gave it to a colleague of his. And his colleague's like, oh, it's a great idea you had. Um, and, and they said, all right, let's go make it happen. So they, they put it together. They made a presentation to this company. 
And the people that they made the presentation to, uh, the boss says, wow, uh, Charlie, that is, uh, oh, I should say Charlie's the colleague in this example. They said, wow, Charlie, where, like, how do you keep coming up with these great ideas? And Charlie, the colleague, the one who did not come up with the idea, said, they just come to me. <laughs> he wasn't the one who came up with the idea. It was his boss who came up with the idea, who was sitting right next to him. And the boss, my mentor, my friend, he, he said he, became, he just got enraged. Just in, on the inside, just all this ugliness uh, boiled to the, to the surface. And he, because he's like, hold on, you didn't come up with the idea. I came up with the idea, you jerk. But he quickly realized, he said, whoa, 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 whoa. is this who I want to be? <laughs> is, this, is this the type of person I want to be? The one who always needs to get the credit. The one who needs the ego stroke here. The one who needs to be prideful, the one who needs to be arrogant all the time, the one who cares who gets credit, who cares? It doesn't matter. It's good for the company. It's good for my company that I own. It's good for my employee who now has more trust from the people who are paying us. And it's good for the, for the, uh, the, the company we're advising here. The customer is happy. Everyone wins here. Why do I need my ego stroked? And he said, I don't want to be that person. And he realized that that moment and all the anger that was inside of him, That was a gift. He said, that was God telling me, you can't be this arrogant if you're going to grow your company. That's what he learned. He said, if you're going to take on more accounts and you're going to do more with this company, you can't be this type of person or else it will all come crumbling down. And that's what J.R. Miller said um, in that last part I read right there. He said, um, said, if you don't get rid of it, if you permit this flaw to remain, then it's going to be built into the heart of your life. And it will be a point of weakness at which sometime in great stress, your life may break and fall. And that's why he said, I got to get this out of my life because I can't grow my business uh, or my life with this inside of me. J.R. Miller said, get it out of your life. Drive it out. Build up the heroism to confront it. So I don't know, maybe this weekend's not a bad time for that. Right around Thanksgiving, let's find that blemish. Let's drive it out, and we'll come back on Monday and uh, and do better. One eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. Mike Slater show the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Later. Only got a minute here. Um, I want to thank everyone who worked the last two days, particularly on um, on Thanksgiving. So, so we have the obvious, right? Uh, police officers, firefighters, emergency personnel, obviously our service members. No day off for Thanksgiving uh, in the military. But I also want to thank people who worked at movie theaters, you know, so the rest of us can go uh, make some good memories on uh, on Thanksgiving, watching a good movie. So thank you for doing that. People work different retail jobs, but also people who, who work the jobs that we don't think about. Remember, uh, I don't know, I was in Tennessee, so maybe seven years ago. Uh, it was the day before Thanksgiving, and I asked who's working on Thanksgiving. And someone called in and said, Slater, 
I work at the Waste Treatment Center. And I said, I still got to work because people still flush toilets on Thanksgiving. Actually, people flush toilets on Thanksgiving maybe more than any other day of the year. So I still got to be working on Thanksgiving. So thank you, sir, and everyone who works at Waste Treatment Center so we can flush toilets on uh, on Thanksgiving and every other day of the year. Uh, someone called into my show the other day and said, Slater, I'm a trucker. Uh, I used to have a show on Sirius XM on uh, uh, and Patriot and... Uh, Gosh, 80% of our audience were truckers. So this guy who called in, uh, and I love truckers. I love, I'm fascinated by logistics, how things get from one point to the other. So this guy was driving lettuce on Thanksgiving, lettuce from Bakersfield, California to Boston. So people in uh, Massachusetts can uh, have their lettuce on Thanksgiving every other day of the year. So I just want to be grateful for everyone who, who moved things around the country, all the truckers who drove. Uh, I mean, first of all, the farmers who grew the turkeys, raised the turkeys, don't grow them, I guess, right? Um, the people who make the food to feed the turkeys, the people who make the machines to slaughter and, and clean the turkeys and pack them up, and the truckers who drive the turkeys to the distribution centers and then to the grocery stores so that we all got a turkey on uh, a couple days before Thanksgiving. I mean, and that with every other food. How did it get from one place to your, ta- to your table? Ah, the magic of the free market. Thank you to everyone who made that happen. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, America's the greatest country in the world. Hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving, having a restful, relaxing weekend as much as possible. Uh, I want to kick off the hour. We'll go to Brad, who is in uh, New Jersey. How are you today, Brad? Well, my friend, doing well. Happy Thanksgiving back to you. Thank you, sir. Um, Just wanted to uh, say that I really appreciated the last segment and uh, um, the various ideas that you brought forth and that reminded me uh, when I was a young man uh, as a, a new manager that I had a little thing that I'd cut out of a magazine posted over my desk and it was a picture of a plaque that sat on Ronald Reagan's desk that said there is no limit to where a man can go or what he can achieve so long as he doesn't mind who gets the credit mm-hmm. and uh, was uh, um, you know something that helped keep me humble and uh, um, you know, made me a better mentor uh, of the people that I was uh, charged to lead. Do you, I, I love that last part there? Made you a better mentor. How did it do that? Do you have an example or story? Well, um, my first job uh, out of college, I was a supervisor in the airlines, and uh, all the people, almost all the people that I was charged to lead, were double my age. And uh, I had to learn how to win their respect and um, uh, getting them to do work uh, for me uh, meant bringing the best out of them by um, getting them represented before management in a way that 
uh, got them exposure that uh, they otherwise might not have gotten under some of the other uh, folks that uh, they had worked for and uh, trying to subvert uh, or not subvert but um, suppress my own uh, ego and my own desire for exposure so that I could uh, use uh, things to propel my own career but rather wanting to make sure that my guys got the respect and the uh, recognition that they were due for the work that they were doing. Perfect. Yep, that's it. There's a lesson of life. Zig Ziglar uh, said, uh, in an only way that Zig Ziglar could say, uh, you can have everything in life you want if you just help enough people get what they want. Mm. And it sounds like that's what you did, right? You lifted other people up so that they could benefit. And then in the end... Uh, you do as well. Beautiful, Bradman. I appreciate that. We'll, uh, I'll share that throughout the rest of the show. I appreciate you very much. All right. God bless. Thanks for calling, man. You- Sorry. I hung up. I meant to hang up on Brad and then said I turned my microphone off. Jeez. I take two days off. It's like you've never done this before. Um, Brad, thanks for that, man. That reminds me of a story um, of a uh, hotel manager. He was the manager of a hotel in Philadelphia. And it was a cold, rainy night in Philly. And a man and his wife came into the lobby late at night. It was a smaller hotel. And they asked for a room. This was a long time ago, 1800s, early 1900s. Asked for, for a room. And uh, this is obviously before the days of you know Expedia. And the manager said, oh, I'm sorry, we're all out of, we're all out of rooms, but um, gosh, I can't send you away out in the rain at you know one in the morning. Would you be willing to sleep in my room? He said, it's not, it's not really a suite, but it's a place you can rest your head for, for a comfortable night. Managers in hotels back in, the day, back in the day would have a room in the hotel, a very small room in the hotel where they would stay. And the couple said, no, 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 we can't do that. And, and the manager said, no, 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 I insist. Got them all set up. And then he worked all night uh, without going to bed. Uh, so the next morning, the, the couple came back downstairs to check out. And, and on the way out, uh, the guest said that you are the kind of manager who should be the boss of the best hotel in the United States. And maybe someday I'll build one for you. A, a pleasantry right there. They laughed and walked away. And two years later, this manager got a uh, ticket to go to New York City. And he met the man who he gave his room to two years prior. And they met in New York City on the corner of 5th and 34th Street. And that man happened to be William Waldorf Astor, who uh, built the Waldorf Hotel in New York City. And the hotel right next door was built by John Jacob Astor IV. uh, And now we know it as the Waldorf Astoria. Uh, One of the nicest hotels in New York City. And William Waldorf said, I want you to manage my new hotel. So there's your, your simple fact of life right there. But the opposite of what we're told in the world, isn't it? We're told, get ahead, any way possible. Climb over people, trample people, jump on people. In in every aspect of life, just trample over people, whether it's something with your job or whether you want that vegetable steamer that's on sale for $20 instead of $25. Does anyone know about those vegetable steamers? What are those vegetable steamers that people were trampling over each other for? Have you ever wanted a vegetable steamer that bad in your entire life? I guess we should take heart that it was a vegetable steamer, not a deep fryer, I suppose. But really, honestly, what is wrong with people? Anyway, I don't want to get off topic. Point is, we're told to to trample over, do whatever it takes to get ahead. And uh, as Brad and Zig Ziglar uh, 
and the new manager or the manager at the time of the Waldorf story, the first manager. Uh, you can have everything in life you want if you just help enough people get what they want. And then as Reagan said, as Brad mentioned, there's no limit to the amount of good you can do if you don't care who gets the credit. Now this is for like work stuff and other aspects of life too. I want to uh, play a clip here because this actually ties in pretty nicely. Um, can you play the, the... So this is the Eagles of Death Metal band, right? So the two... This is the band that was playing in Paris with the with the terrorist attack. They did their first interview with Vice and they're going to release it here in just a couple days but they gave just a, a quick taste of the interview and, and I want to play just a part of it here. Several people hid in our dressing room and... The killers were able to get in and killed every one of them, except for a kid who was hiding under my leather jacket. Killers got in your dressing room? Yeah. Wow. People were playing dead, and they were so scared. A a great reason why so many were killed is because so many people wouldn't leave their friends. Mm. So, and uh, so many people put themselves in front of people. Wow. How about that? The reason that so many people were killed in Paris was because people wouldn't leave their friends. So that means they had the chance to run out the door to safety. But, but maybe they couldn't find their friend in the chaos. So they either didn't go or they looked for their friends or maybe they started to run but they ran back. Right, Their friend went and, and got a drink or something or went to the bathroom and then that happened and they didn't know where they were so they had to find their friend. They're not going to leave without their friend. Or their friend was shot. But instead of them saying, I'm out of here, and they run to safety, they they would either uh, try to rescue them or stay with them in their pain. Or, and we shared a couple stories, of men who jumped in front of people to save their lives. There's a man who jumped in front of his girlfriend to save her life. Another man threw himself in front of a woman he didn't even know. We need to hear more of, of these stories. And we did after the terrorist attack. But there's stories like this all the time. right? Stories of light amidst darkness. And I hope when you hear stories like this, I hope it's encouraging to you. It is to me. I, I just know. That. All right. Hands up if you feel like our values are eroding as a nation. Actually, this is a good time to read the, the Glenn Beck thing. Sorry, I, I deleted it. I canceled the webpage on that one. Un momento. Pulling it up here. Glenn Beck's Facebook page. It was a couple days ago. thought it was yesterday. Um, All right, so right past the video. Here it is. Okay, I think this is pretty interesting, actually. Um, he says, I've always wondered why Islamists haven't hit us on Black Friday. This is Glenn talking. It wouldn't be hard. And he goes on. Uh, you know it, and, and, and they know it, so why hasn't it happened? Is it because the Department of Homeland Security is so good? Is it because they're not here yet? Is it because they don't have the resources? No, no, no. It's because God is protecting us. But why? May I suggest one theory? Why target something that is already destroying the culture? 
We're killing ourselves and destroying everything in our path. Look at this link, and it's the video of the, the people fighting over the, the vegetable steamer. <laughs> what? Look at this link and tell me that you aren't ashamed to be an American. Things are made to be used and people are made to be loved, but our sick society has reversed the two. Now stuff is loved and people are used. This is what the rest of the world sees. Tell me that when the world does melt down and we go into a Great Depression that we don't tear each other apart. What do we unite on? Everything and everyone is dividing us. We are doing the work for those who want to destroy the American experiment. Give us time and we will destroy ourselves. A little dark there, but I think there's something to it. And that's why I refuse to, <laughs> to, to live. I, I refuse to sit by and, and let only those stories have the spotlight. Because look at what happened in Paris. People did amazingly heroic things, amazingly selfless things in an increasingly selfish world. So yeah, we get videos here of people uh, you know, stealing a vegetable steamer from a child and then the mom and the, who know, like what? But then we also have stories of, of men jumping in front of women. It's bullets! <laughs> Taking bullets for them, literally. So my only conclusion of this is that we are narcissistic and selfish because we can be. But my hope is that when we're faced with something that challenging, challenges us, then we become the better versions of ourselves. The version that's within each of us, but buried by security and abundance. Martin Luther King Jr. said one of the great problems of mankind is that we suffer from a poverty of the spirit which stands in glaring contrast to our scientific and technological abundance. The richer we become materially, the poorer we have become morally and spiritually. So we get richer and richer materially and morally and spiritually. We are poor and poor. And my hope is when, when times get tough and when we become materially poor, then we will become morally and spiritually wealthier. And just look at what happened in the theater. If you don't think that that's going to happen, look what happened in the theater. When, when people were pushed, when they were challenged, when they were terrorized, that's when the heroics emerged. And that's when who they were shined the most. The question is, is are we going to shine as well? We've got to take a break. i got a lot more to say on this. I, I did an interview the other day with a biographer of Jim Thorpe. Told a really cool story. I can share the story of it when we get back here. Um, I also promised we would play uh, some clips of this interview I did with an Iraqi who became a translator for the Navy SEALs in Iraq. And he's an American citizen now. And I asked him what he thinks of Syrian refugees. His answer may surprise you. We'll do all that coming up. Mike Slater, show the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. On the Blaze Radio Network.
Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, every uh, Monday on my local show at 11 o'clock Pacific time, we talk to a, a biographer of someone who made America great in some way. And I ask the same question to each biographer. I say, give us three characteristics of this person that defined who they, uh, who they were and that we can apply to our lives. So uh, this Monday, if you want to tune into my local show, it's um, Jim Henson. We're going to talk about Jim Henson. But uh, last week was Jim Thorpe, right? one of the greatest athletes ever. And the author, I'll just do this real short. Um, she said one of his characteristics is he's, he's uh, an Iron Man. Which is interesting. Um, and told all these stories of how pain just didn't register. <laughs> like he just didn't, he didn't, just completely ignored it. But more than that. And she told the story of one game he had a broken foot, football game. And he had a broken foot, but he played anyway and then had a, a killer game and was asked afterwards how you did that. Not only did he play the game, he uh, kicked the field goals with a broken foot. And he said, the pain helped me. It made me more deliberate. The pain helped me. It made me more deliberate. And I think that's so, so perfect. And that's absolutely what we need to do right now in America. And the pain may not have hit yet. It may be for your family. But I don't think nationwide the pain hasn't hit yet. But when it does, we have to think of it as a blessing because it can make us more deliberate with our lives um i'll never forget this quote from Corey robertson yes the wife of willie robertson from duck dynasty but uh actually it was in the church boys podcast here on the blaze and uh she said we're so confused <laughs> she said, we're confused we're confused about what's right and wrong we're confused about what we value we're confused about what's important and what's heroic and we've lost sight of who we are i love that quote i think that's so true But when we're in pain, we can be more deliberate about what is important. One of my favorite quotes ever when I heard this biographer uh, tell that story of Jim Thorpe, um, I thought of one of my favorite quotes from Abigail Adams. The woman, not even behind John, but next to him the whole time, a woman who it was said that if she lived in a different time, then she would be president. She said... These are the times in which a genius would wish to live. And she sent this to her husband, who was discouraged. These are the times in which a genius genius would wish to live. It is not in the still calm of life or the repose of a Pacific station that great characters are formed. The habits of a vigorous mind are formed in contending with difficulties. Great necessities call out great virtues. When a mind is raised and animated by scenes that engage the heart, then those qualities which would otherwise lay dormant wake into life and form the character of the hero and the statesman. When times get difficult and challenging... Uh, it'll be difficult and challenging, (laughs) but those are the times that you were made for. Um, Maybe I can do this a little later because I promised I would play this clip from uh, Johnny Walker 
the Iraqi, uh, talking about Syrian refugees. I want to do that next. But maybe in the next hour I could talk about uh, this amazing experience I had two weekends ago. Maybe was it last weekend? I forget. Um, I had the amazing opportunity to emcee the uh, FIDF dinner. FIDF is Friends of the Israeli Defense Forces. So it's sort of like Israel's USO, kind of. Um, they help with uh, all the service members and, and everyone in Israel. Uh, when you turn 18, you have to join the military for two years. And this year, it was to benefit the women or to highlight the women of the IDF. So I got to meet a couple of these Israeli soldiers, women soldiers. I met three of them in particular. We had dinner together. Uh, 19, 22, 23. They looked like children. Looked like children. They were beautiful girls in uniform, hair pulled back, and they looked so young. My wife couldn't get up. My wife just turned 27, and she's like, who are these kids right here? Who are these kids? But a month ago, the 19-year-old, the 19-year-old blonde, blonde girl was standing at her post in Israel. Someone came up to her and asked for directions, and she was telling her, and this woman pulled out a knife and tried to stab her, and she was able to pull out her gun real quick and killed her. So the 19-year-old girl who, when I asked her what she wanted to do when she was in America for the first time in her life, and she said, I want to go shopping at Target. One month ago, she killed someone. And I, I, if that's not an example of when things are difficult and challenging, we are called to our greatest ability and virtue. It's a 19-year-old. Think of our 19-year-old girls, what they're doing compared to what this girl in Israel is doing. We'll chat more about that coming up a little later. Mike Slater Show. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Part of the next generation of talk radio. This is Mike Slater. Slater Crusaders, I apologize. Uh, we're going to play the clips of Johnny Walker coming up in the next hour. We'll come out with that um, in 30 minutes here. So an Iraqi uh, citizen who wanted more than anything in his life to become an American. It was just, it was, and I've, I believe this. I believe that uh, there's, you have an American by birth, and I believe that, that, that there's a concept of being an American um, and those people are all around the world. And I, and I want those people to uh, come to America. Those people to come to America and become citizens uh, as well. This is one of those men. And when you hear a story, you'll agree. Um, and he became an interpreter. He didn't even speak English, <laughs> but he learned English to become an interpreter for the American military. And he earned the trust of our uh, military, ended up working with the SEALs, did over a thousand missions in Iraq. And now he's living here in San Diego. And I asked him what he thinks about Syrian refugees coming to America. And I won't tease you. Uh, I'll tell you what he said. He said, no. Coming from him, that's, uh, that's saying a lot. So I want to play his, uh, part of his interview. I talked to him the other day, coming up in uh, half an hour here. But let me wrap up this, this story here about the um, IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces. So uh, I don't know, maybe there's 20 chapters of the Friends of the IDF here in America. And they raise money and they help out. Uh, the Israeli soldiers with scholarships and uh, medical bills and help with injured vets and their families and stuff like that in Israel. So I guess it's sort of like our USO, kind of. 
So I had the incredible honor of, of emceeing their uh, their big dinner here uh, in San Diego, and the theme was women who uh, serve in combat roles because everyone in Israel has to serve uh, at least two years. So got to meet a couple of these girls uh, at the uh, Shabbat dinner on Friday night before the event, and they were 19, 22, and 23 kids. And I told the story before the break of, of the girl, who the 19-year-old, who a month ago had to shoot someone who's trying to stab her while she was standing post uh, in Israel. 19 years old. 19. Another girl, the 22-year-old, works in the Iron Domes. The Iron Dome is the missile defense shield that they have in Israel. Um, and they detect missiles, right? So if a missile comes into Israel, then they detect it and shoot it out of the sky. So we're talking to this woman. She's 22. She's an officer in the Iron Dome. And she's telling the story of how they intercept missiles. And she's talking about all the necessary steps and how they figure it out and all the rest. And I asked how long they have to make the decision. You know, from when they see the missile on the screen to when they shoot it out of the sky. How long uh, does that have? I mean, how long do you think? I was thinking... I mean, I wish I could share all the things that she said has to happen. Um, I was thinking like four minutes, three, four minutes you have to shoot it out. Six seconds. She said six seconds, maybe eight from when it pops up on the screen. They have six seconds to make a decision, a decision. And this, this woman, just a few months ago, a missile was headed to her house. It was going to land on her family's house. And she realized that. And still within six seconds, she was able to act and shoot it out of the sky. <laughs> so my wife and I are listening to these stories at dinner and our mouths are on the table. And I, and I couldn't help and no one could help but make the obvious comparison between these women and the children at Yale and Missouri and other colleges who are complaining about every single thing they can think of. I don't know if we told the story last week of the bag of feces that was left out in the front of the uh, Black Student Union building at Vanderbilt in Nashville. Campus went nuts. Protest. Students talked about how they won't be silenced. They'll never succumb to these vile threats to their safety, blah, 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 blah. Turned out security camera footage found a, a blind student walking her seeing eye dog, cleaned up after her dog, and because she's blind and couldn't find a garbage can, apparently the appropriate thing to do is to leave it outside the nearest building so someone else can throw it away. And it just so happened that this blind person left the bag of dog poop outside the front door of the black student union and almost caused a race war. Absurd. That's here in America. Meanwhile, in Israel, this 19-year-old had to kill someone who was trying to stab her because she's Jewish. And this other girl had to shoot a missile out of the sky as it was headed towards her home. Also because she was Jewish. Tell me who has real problems. Well, you know what I mean. <laughs> I, think the, I think our kids here in America have problems. But uh, you know what I'm trying to say. Like a mo they have mental problems. Um... I asked these girls if they were scared. Because they're telling these stories and they're freaking us out. And I said, are you girls scared when you join the military? And they immediately said no. 
How can that be? Two reasons. First, they prepared for it their whole lives to join the military. They prepared their whole lives. It was expected. They were raised emotionally, physically, and spiritually to join the IDF, to join the Israeli Defense Forces. And that's what we talked about on Monday after the Paris attacks. The very first segment of the show, we kicked it off, and I said, uh, and Glenn's been doing this for a long time, too, the basic idea. We need to prepare ourselves emotionally, physically, and spiritually for when this happens here. That's what these girls did their whole lives because they knew they were going to join. They have to. So they were prepared for it. Which leads me to believe that our kids here in America are capable of so much more. They are. They're capable of more. What are we preparing our kids for? Honest question. What are we preparing them for? I have no idea. (laughs) I have no idea what we're... We don't have a rite of passage in America like these girls do and like everyone in Israel does. Right? These girls, they go to high school, they join the IDF, they graduate, and then they get on with the rest of their lives, and they're so much more mature and experienced than kids here. What are we preparing our kids for? Honestly, it's like you go to high school so that you can go to college, and then college is a four-year, now turning into a five-year party hangout scene, and then you graduate and what go we work and then but i mean yeah it's like, like whatever what is that there's no there's nothing behind that what are we preparing our kids for and whatever it is uh, whatever we're preparing our kids for now they're capable of so much more second reason these these women weren't scared when they joined they have a deeply ingrained sense of purpose they aren't scared because they're doing something more important than them And they realize that they're protecting the Jewish state. Right? That's more than, it's not a selfish pursuit. And no, nothing, nothing of, nothing that matters can be about you. Right? So if you have a sense of purpose about yourself, you're doing it wrong. So that's why these, these women were so strong because it wasn't about them. The, the woman who works in the Iron Dome, I uh, asked her the most rewarding part of her job. And she said she was walking home and she saw a bunch of kids playing outside. And she knew that a missile was coming and like that a couple hours ago was going to kill them. But she shot it out of the sky. So these kids, she knows, are able to have fun and play because of her work and because of everyone in the Iron Dome and everyone in the IDF. These kids can have fun. I ran into a friend uh, at the dinner and he went to Israel. He goes there a couple times a year. And he said he was walking around the last time and the siren goes off, which says a missile's coming. And you're supposed to run to a bunker. He got like 30 seconds. And uh, he looked over and he saw a group of, of female soldiers running towards a group of kids. And the kids all fell on the ground into like a ball. They all like you know, run around, ran around each other. And then the soldiers covered them and protected them from any debris that may be coming their way. So there's there's a, a deep understanding of of uh, in Israel of not only protecting our kids but protecting the future. Right? The, the concept of the future is very strong with the Jewish people. It's not just our kids. It's the future. 
I don't know. I, I, I share that just because every day Israel fights for their future. And it just so happens that their future is our future. And vice versa. What are we preparing our kids for? And do they have a, a deeply ingrained sense of purpose? Because when you have those things, especially the purpose, then no, you're not scared of anything. Or at least that's being scared won't hold you back. Uh, want to come back here. I think we'll have time here. I want to share the a story here. I just want to, I don't have time to do the full, whole thing, but um, you hear about these girls, these two girls from Austria, 16 and 17, who joined ISIS. Just white, middle-class teenage girls who picked, packed up and moved to Syria to join ISIS. And now there's reports that they're both uh, they're both dead. But the question is, why? 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 What? What? Why? Why? Why are these girls going to join ISIS? Hundreds of girls from Europe have left to join. Not even Muslim. Hundreds of white non-Muslim girls joining ISIS. How can that possibly, possibly be? How could one, let alone hundreds? Well, someone has a theory that I that I think is uh, spot on. I want to share that next. Mike Slater, show the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. So have you heard the story of these uh, two girls from Austria? They were 16 and 17 uh, when they left. Just beautiful high school girls. Uh, They looked like they could have been cheerleaders or stars on the high school soccer team. Last April 2014, they left home in in Austria and, and moved to Syria to join ISIS. What? What? Like, like, you look at these girls. What are you talking about? 16 and 17. What? And the rest of the story is horrible, and, and you don't want to hear it. I don't have time to tell it. And, and they become pregnant, and then they blah, blah, blah. blah just gotta, it turns out that they, they think they're dead. They were killed. Um, after posting pictures on their Facebook, wearing the job and the whole thing, right? Only their eyes showing and all this stuff. And it's like, what is going on? Why are hundreds of young white girls with no Muslim background at all leaving home to join ISIS? It defies all logic, right? Lee Smith wrote a piece that I think is spot on. And he says that teenage girls are, are, the, are the, the, the Western culture's center of gravity, right? Pop culture is tailored not to 45-year-old men, but to 16-year-old girls, right? Cell phones and apps, it's, it's there for teenage girls. Everyone else just jumps on the bandwagon. So why are teenage girls, hundreds of them, deciding to turn away from One Direction and, and embrace ISIS? Like One Direction, like the band. Like, what's going on? And what are you doing enjoying ISIS? It means the West is losing. And I want to read this one paragraph here. I think it's spot on. He says, because for all the awesome social services and consumer goods it can offer, Europe has become incapable of endowing the lives of of its citizens, Muslim or not, with meaning. A generation of young European Muslims 
are giving up their relatively easy lives in Malma, Marseille, and Manchester for the battlefields of Syria and Iraq. Why? Because Europe is devoid of values worth living or dying for. They're leaving for the same reason that Europe's Jews are moving to Israel. Strength and a sense of purpose can be found elsewhere. What Europe's dissatisfied youth see is that the Western powers roll over and take it again and again. The issue isn't that we enjoy being humiliated. It's just that we don't really believe there's anything worth fighting for. I think that is spot on. Again, this, uh, this IDF dinner I went to, these girls knew exactly what they were doing. They had a, a deep sense of purpose. Do our kids? Or is this nihilism just turning kids off from what's right and wrong? It's just like, well, but, but it's, we're deeply ingrained to want to fight for something. Here, let me read this. Do I have time? Yeah, I, got, I read this comment in the article. Um, someone said, I think, is this a quote? I think many women are turned off by Western secular, secularist nihilism. The world came into being through a random bang. We'll probably go out through a random bang. And any love or meaning you may found in your life was merely a chemical reaction. And any children you have are little more than vessels of the selfish gene. For girls, uh, that sounds like a nightmare. Family is meaningless. Relationships are meaningless. Love is meaningless. Contrast a man of vision with a man of nihilism. One knows where he's going and how to get there. The other denies there's anywhere to go at all. And the harsh truth is, compared to a secularist nihilist, which is what we are, at least a devout Islamic male might seem to have some vision of where he's going and how to get there. Now, of course, it's a horrible vision. But this is all the more reason why Christian males need to drop the video game controllers, throw out the liberal theology, and start acting like men again. In other words, words, life needs purpose again. Life needs meaning. Otherwise, evil fills the vacuum. And hundreds of blonde, white teenage girls in Europe are leaving for ISIS. What the heck is going on? They're looking for something to believe in. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in three, two... You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. If you don't mind, give me one second. Sure. I'm going to ask my son. He's 11 years old. Hey, Mustafa. Mike, do you hear me? Yes, I do. Okay, Mustafa. Are you Iraqi or American? American. Of course. Okay. Tell me. Mustafa, what do you want to be? Navy SEAL. Navy SEAL? <laughs> That's awesome. Um, it's Johnny Walker. The book about him is called Codename, Johnny Walker. Great read. Uh, the short of his story is, is an Iraqi citizen 
who wanted more than anything to be an American. Why? Because John Wayne, of course. It's all John Wayne movies. Wanted to be an American. So when the Americans came to town, he uh, did everything he could to, to gain the trust of the American service members, which was difficult because he didn't speak English. But he knew that if he could learn the language, then he'd become, he could become a translator. So he did. And then doing a bunch of different things, including saving the lives of some Americans, he earned the trust of the Navy SEALs. Saved their lives a few times as well. Johnny Walker now lives in San Diego. He's a refugee. Um, and his citizenship ceremony is in a couple weeks. So I thought it would be interesting to get his perspective on the Syrian refugees. Because he was a refugee. So I asked him a pretty simple question. Um, well, here it is. Big Close picture. Up. Should America allow uh, refugees from Syria? No. Big no. Are you, a, are you a refugee? I am different refugees. You know me. All the SEALs community trust me. And if you trust that 10,000 refugees came into the U.S., yeah, more than welcome. But if you don't trust them, how are you going to bring them? And what's the purpose? The purpose is helping them. Okay, there's Turkey next to Syria, and there's Jordan next to Syria. Built compound with market, hospital, schools, everything. And instead of you spend money for the 10,000 person coming to the United States and give him welfare and wasting money, build that compound and don't deal. Everyone happy. This is one. Second thing, if everyone to blame United States is infidel land and the Arabic Muslim countries, they don't welcome the refugee. Why, why we bring them in instead of another Arabic country like UAE, Saudi, Qatar, Bahrain? They are wealthy country. They can build island to them somewhere, you know. Yeah. But there is other. Two things we should take care of. People do need our help as refugee. The one who is worked with us as interpreter, as soldier, and we left him behind. Mm. We should keep our promises. And also our patrons. I saw like a few days ago, homeless patrons, and this looked like, oh my gosh. Yep. So, what's, uh, what's going on? You know. So, I don't know. That's uh, it's, it's his answer seems pretty reasonable, coming from an Iraqi refugee. He says we should bring in people from Iraq or Syria or wherever who have helped us, who have helped the American military, and who we know everything about, but no one more. In the meantime, help build a place in the Middle East. Which isn't a crazy idea. That was an idea presented by two professors in Foreign Affairs magazine uh, the other day. We're, we're trying to get them on, uh, and we can get a little more detail on their proposal. But they said we should build an economic security zone in the Middle East, a place where refugees can go and make a new life and, and learn skills and, and work in, uh, and build businesses and um, learn new language or whatever, and then when the war's over, go back home. Now, I don't know exactly how that works. It's never been tried before. 
but that I, I like some creative solutions here, right? That seems like a 21st century solution to a problem as opposed to just sticking with the old 20th century model in which we just move someplace else on the other side of the world that's completely different from where I've been. That doesn't make any sense. I want to play one last clip here. Uh, there's a swear word in this clip. We took it out, but if you got kiddos listening, um, you know, use your judgment here. But it's it's fine. Um, he was talking about Muslims in San Diego. So just and I did not realize this until I moved to San Diego. But two of the nine eleven hijackers lived here. They lived maybe maybe a mile and a half from where I'm sitting right now. And they went to a mosque, which is three quarters of a mile from where I'm sitting right now. And they trained at a flight school, which is probably two miles from where I'm sitting right now. And there is a disproportionate number of terrorists that Al-Qaeda links uh, that have been arrested in Minnesota and here in San Diego. So he brought it up. I didn't even ask him about it. But he brought up Muslims in San Diego and um, their thoughts on America. Here's clip eight. There's some condition, if I want to come to the United States, I have to respect it. Because this is what happened, and this is from my experience. I saw a lot of some of the Muslims in San Diego area. I talked with them, and soon we gave a conversation about U.S. They call it infidel land. So it looks like this is infidel land. What are you doing here? Go to your country, go to Holy Land in Saudi Arabia, in Iran, wherever. I don't care. Let this country be healthy from this sickness idea. All right, we we well, he, we gotta have a conversation here, Johnny. So, are you a Muslim? Uh, I yeah, but not like serious Muslim. Sure, but sure, I love sure. to enjoy my life. So hold on. So you tell me. That you've talked to Muslims here in San Diego who call America infidel land. Yeah. Like one yeah. or t- one or two people or, or a good number? I don't know. At least like five. Wow. I have like deep conversation with them and it looks like, you know what, for my language, I'm not going to get involved with them. They're so sick and they don't deserve to be here. And, they, you know, they corrupt the system. Like one of them, sorry, Somalian people. He's Somalian. He came and he had three wives with, with him. And he had fake paper. Mm-hmm. And that's what he told me in car dealer. And he says, I came with three wives. They live in the same uh, house and uh, charity. They give us money. And here we go. I'm going to buy a new car from those infidels. Really? Looks like this does not make any sense to me. So, wait, Hans. You call them infidel and you take money from them. If you are a serious Muslim and you think about that, you don't know this money came from where. So, yeah. Um, <clears throat> read an article from a woman named Luma Sims. She's a refugee from Baghdad, Christian. So also in San Diego and El Cajon down the street, uh, we have the largest Chaldean population in the, in America. Chaldeans are uh, Christian people from Iraq. 
or a certain type of Christian person from Iraq. Um, so I don't know if Luma Sims is Chaldean, but uh, she's an American now. She says she cries when she hears the national anthem. She's American through and through. And she says her argument is that refugees won't assimilate well. Um, here's her argument. I think it's interesting. Uh, you may disagree with this, but I don't know. I think there's something to it. Uh, she says assimilation is difficult and develops slowly, if at all, anymore. In the present day, there are two problems with it. As American culture has become more decadent and sexually licentious, the threshold for assimilation has become steep. Immigrants from cultures like the Middle East that hold to, among other traditions, traditional sexual mores, whether Muslim or Christian, become clannish and isolate themselves from the surrounding American culture to protect themselves and their children. The culture eventually corrupts their children and the family degenerates uh let's see the second one is yeah it's worth reading um the other issue is that immigrants of today are unlike the immigrants of yesteryear most come out of necessity they come they don't come because they, they love america they've come because they don't want to die in war this type of refugee situation brings people who see america as better than death and that's it Hence, they will take whatever America wants to give, but will keep themselves isolated. They have no interest in assimilating. Some Muslims have even taken to building their own homeschooling cooperatives rather than sending their children to American public schools. How much American history do you think they're going to learn and with what bias? So I think that's interesting. Again, that's coming from an Iraqi refugee. Um, At first, she says, or one part of this, the lack of assimilation, is our fault. Because our culture has been uh, eroding in a negative way. And we're asking immigrants to assimilate to something that by every previous standard is not something that anyone would want to assimilate to. I mean, heck, if you asked someone from 1950 to assimilate to America today, then they would rather isolate themselves than do it. So we're asking even even Christians from the Middle East to come to America and, and you know what, watch the American Music Awards? I mean, like, whoa, like, <laughs> I'm not going to watch that. It's garbage. I don't want to watch that. I mean, that's just, that's just one element of it, but I think that's, that's interesting. Anyway, I bring it up because of this last line she says. She says, concerning the current refugee situation, again, another refugee saying this, close American borders, protect our country, bring in Christians, and only if they already have family here. Otherwise, I would suggest America and other capable Western nations carve out space in relatively stable Middle Eastern nations and help these people resettle in areas where the language and culture is closer to their own. I don't know, I share because if you have that opinion, if you've had that thought before, that's not a thought of a racist, xenophobic, hate-mongering, awful, horrible person. Here's two refugees in America who are saying that for the a majority or a large number of the, the refugees from Syria in particular, uh, it's not going to go well here. For them. <laughs> not for us either. For no one. It's not, it's not a good idea for anyone. Forget about the terrorist part even. It's just not a good idea. Not necessary. And that's, why, that's what Johnny Walker said. I said, should we bring in Syrian refugees? He said, no. What for? <laughs> like, why would we? For anyone's sake. Why would we? Uh, things to think about. one 900 3393 Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment on the Blaze Radio Network.
Mike Slater. Slater Crusaders, thanks for being here. Um, Bill Maher the other day had on a couple people, and one of them was the uh, member of the Canadian Parliament. And uh, I'm going to spare you the entire clip here, but she says one thing about, because Bill Maher, you know, obviously is right on, on this issue, uh, but the idea of, of Islam, ideas of Islam, many of them held by most of the Muslim world. And uh, this woman said, Bill, diversity, our, our, our diversity is our strength. And we need to stand up for real diversity. I just I want to sit on that sentence for a second. What does that mean? What does that mean? Our diversity is our strength. Meditate on that for a second. Our diversity is our strength. Our diversity, I, I just want to, the reason I ask to sit on it is because if you really think about it, and not for long, three seconds, everyone will realize that is that is as, as, as stupid of a platitude as you can ever come up with. Diversity is our strength. What does that mean? That is such a stupid thing to say. Or I should, maybe, maybe that's too harsh. It's obvious. And here's what I mean. It's not the important thing. The diversity is not the important thing because diversity is obvious. We are naturally diverse. You don't need to look hard to find ways that we are diverse, either by uh, uh, silly things like skin color, surface things, or deeper things, passions, interests, talents, goals, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's so many different, um, I mean, we're all diverse. So it's, you can't say that's our strength. That's too obvious. There's something else that's more important that makes us strong. And that's not our diversity. That's our unity. The platitude of diversity is our strength is only true when diverse people agree on a common goal and a common purpose. Your family uh, this this weekend for uh, Thanksgiving. Quite diverse, no? <laughs> diverse group of people? Huh? Right? Crazy uncle, whoever comes in, diverse character. Everyone in your family is diverse in good ways. But that doesn't mean anything. The only reason your family works is if and when you're united for a common purpose. It's our motto of our country for the love of Pete. I'm not making this up. E pluribus unum, out of many, one. Diversity, uh, let's think about it like this. Um, a construction crew. Okay, We're going to build a building. Obviously, you need diversity on the crew. You need people with lots of diverse talents. You need someone who's good at pouring concrete. You need people who are good at putting up framing. You need someone who's good at putting in the electricity and the plumbing and all the rest. And if you took all the people who were involved in building a building and you lined them up, it's an incredibly diverse group of skill sets. I mean, if you take someone who's pouring concrete and a welder, I think their skill sets are pretty diverse. But that diversity is only worth a darn if everyone has the common purpose of building the building. That diversity only means anything. That diversity is only strong if everyone has the same blueprints and if everyone wants to build the building. If the welder wants to burn the building down, then diversity is no longer our strength. 
So do you see how stupid that is to say that diversity is our strength? It's meaningless. It is an empty, meaningless platitude because you're leaving out the important thing, and that is the unity of the diverse people. Unity is our strength. Unity in purpose. Again, I don't mean to keep bringing up this is uh, this Israeli dinner the other night, but uh, someone came up to me at the end and said, Slater, why do you think a country of 7 million people, which is twice the size of San Diego County, for some perspective, 7 million people is not a lot. Why do you think a country of 7 million people, Israel, has, has survived while they've been completely surrounded by 300 million Arabs who want to kill them? And he said it's because Israel is the only people, are the only people, who understand the concept of the flag, the concept of a nation state, the concept of their future, their identity. Someone in Syria has no concept of Syria. Right? Syria was just, Syria for hundreds of years was controlled by the Ottoman Empire. And it was just split up by the British and the French along random lines after World War II. So the people of Syria have no connection or affinity to the concept of Syria. That's why they're fleeing, because it's nothing worth fighting for. Syria is a created concept, and they don't care. But you look at Israel, Israel is as diverse as anywhere else in the world. You can have black Jews from Africa, blonde Jews from Russia, and Jews from all around the world. And they all go to one place, and they survive because they have a common purpose. And when we lose that common purpose, in the name of diversity, then... We're doomed. That's the end. It's the unity that matters. So when anyone says diversity is our strength or some stupid thing like that that belongs on a poster in a middle school art class, or whatever, like, call them out on that. Don't let them get away with it. Challenge them to think deeper. Diversity is so lazy. It's so lazy because we're all diverse. I was reading a book the other day that talked about Chinese people in Jamaica Right? It's like, which is what? Huh? I didn't know there were Chinese people. Like, diversity is so obvious. It's the unity that matters. Strength in unity. And what's the point of filling up our country with people who don't share a common, we don't share a common purpose with? That needs to be the standard. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater is on. Slater Crusaders want to play this uh, one last clip here. And then we'll stop talking about uh, Islam and the rest. Uh, This is a clip from Megyn Kelly. And she's talking with a a former Islamic extremist who spent uh, four years in an Egyptian prison. And uh, I don't know know how he reformed, but... uh, he has. So here he is chatting with uh, Megyn Kelly. Clip 12. Policy from day one has been a policy of obfuscation, denial, uh, and unfortunately a lack of action and a lack of strategy. Now, I don't believe what we're facing, um, unlike what the Pope 
mentioned and what King Abdullah endorsed, I don't think we're facing World War III. Uh, on the contrary, actually, what I think we're facing is a global jihadist insurgency. And how an insurgency differs from a, a traditional war is that insurgencies, uh, by definition, rely upon a certain level of support within the communities that they're seeking to recruit from. Mm -hmm. And as we know with ISIS, you know, 6,000 fighters have gone and joined the worst terrorist group that we've ever known in modern times from Europe. Now, that 6,000 doesn't appear in a vacuum. Uh, those 6,000 weren't radicalized overnight. I'd go so far as to say ISIS didn't radicalize those 6,000 who joined them. ISIS plucked the low-hanging fruit. They were but already those, radicalized. But to those in the, the administration who would have us believe, oh, it's just a small, it's a smattering of people. You know, they're based mostly in Syria and we're after them in Syria. What say you? No, absolutely. It's, it's incorrect. I mean, those 6,000 that joined ISIS in Europe, ISIS plucked the low-hanging fruit. And the reason they were already ra radicalized is because for decades in Europe, we have Islamist gr groups working within Muslim communities who have been busy radicalizing Muslims in Europe. I know I was one of those they radicalized. They've been uh, proselytizing and preaching the idea or the notion of uh, resurrecting a theocratic caliphate. So along come ISIS 10, 15 years later and declare that they've established this caliphate, people had already been primed and in anticipation for the return of this so-called caliphate. Uh, in surveys, 33% of British Muslims have sympathy for the notion of resurrecting a caliphate. So we're not looking at ISIS as the main problem. We're not That's even looking at this now thing. defunct term that the, that the State what? Department used to say radicalism. I want to talk to you about that because the, the president says and his supporters, Hillary Clinton, we don't say radical Islam. It's just going to alienate mainstream Muslims. Your thoughts on that? Well, I think actually, you know, there's a danger that if we don't name this thing Islamist extremism and isolate it from mainstream Muslims and then undermine it, on the contrary, exactly what the State Department is hoping to avoid will be brought about because, you know, when we don't name something, the vast majority of people that don't really understand these complex conversations will assume the problem is with the religion of Islam and Muslims themselves. It's only by naming it that we're able to isolate it from mainstream Muslims and say the problem isn't Islam, the problem is Muslim theology. The problem is Islamist extremism, those who wish to impose a version of Islam over society. Mm -hmm. Now, this idea that it's got nothing to do with Islam is as preposterous as saying it's got everything to do with Islam. The truth is, Megan, it's got something to do with Islam. That something mm -hmm. is the fact that Islam is being politicized. It has been for decades within our communities. And it's about time we recognize that, named the problem, isolated it from mainstream Muslims, and then all of us together, Muslims included, but everyone else as well, it's all of our responsibility to then go about challenging this ideology and undermining it. I'll tell you what's extraordinary. Right here we have a, a former Islamic extremist making points and the former head of the Defense Intelligence Agency is sitting right next to me shaking his head in agreement. The, these two men are on the same page yeah. with respect I mean, to a lot of these points. Agreement. A violent agreement. Violent agreement. Unbelievable point on which to end. Thank you both. All right, so that's so uh, an interesting point. I mean, it's all good, but I like that part of the end, right? Uh, the president, Hillary, Kerry, go down the line. Great lengths to say this has nothing to do with Islam. And they do that because they say they don't want people to look down on moderate Muslims. But in reality, by not saying these are Islamic extremists, right? By not, by not calling them extremists, then they're allowing people to paint with a broad brush all Muslims. Does that make sense? They're, they're not making the proper distinction. And by doing that, they're, they're, they're not, by not leading, they're causing people to say, all Muslims are terrorists. 
as opposed to saying, whoa, 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 these are extremist Muslims. And if they did that, then that would protect moderate Muslims because it would create that distinction. And that is very interesting. But nothing to be surprised about. Gosh, we don't have time here, but every week it feels like we do a different government program or talk about a different government policy that does the opposite of what it's intended to do. Exact opposite. So what, how, is it, how would this be any different? Okay, government policy is, well, listen, we want to protect moderate Muslims, so we're not going to say Muslim extremism. And what does that do? Makes it worse for moderate Muslims or regular Muslims, whatever you want to say. Non-extremist. Identify the terms. Make a distinction. Isolate. Go after that group. So the Obama administration is doing a disservice to moderate Muslims. And as we've said before, if I was a Muslim, I'd be on the streets every single day saying, this isn't me. I would be in the streets every day creating that distinction if my government wouldn't do it on my behalf. I'd be very angry at the president for not not making that distinction as well, for not serving me and other moderate Muslims by not making that distinction, by, by putting me and them in the same category. I'd be angry at the president for not making the distinction properly. Because by saying this has nothing to do with Islam, you're allowing people to make the assumption that it has everything to do with Islam. And the appropriate reaction, as this man says, it has something to do with Islam. So let's make the distinction and stomp it out. Fascinating. I think that's really good. one 93 I want to take an early break here. Um, I want to come back and wrap it up. There's one last thing I wanted to say about... Um, well, I don't know. We can. There's one last quick thing I want to say about the girls who who are leaving uh, Europe to go to ISIS, but I don't want to end on that note. We'll find a nicer note to uh, to end on. We'll do that coming up next. One eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. Mike Slater show the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Mike Slater. Again, I want to thank everyone who worked these last couple days. Thank you for keeping our country moving. Appreciate that very much. The jobs that we don't see that need to get done. If you worked on Thanksgiving, that means your job is essential. So thank you for that. I mean, police, firefighter, people work in hospitals. People still get sick on Thanksgiving. It's crazy, right? So we still need doctors and nurses to do what they do best um, because not everything can be put on hold. I want to also thank our truckers for uh, moving things across the country every day of the year, but Thanksgiving as well. I talked to uh, someone the other day who uh, was driving lettuce from Bakersfield, California to Boston, so the fine people of Boston can um, have lettuce on Thanksgiving. Uh, thank you to everyone who farms turkeys, people who make the food that turkeys eat, the people who come up with the machines that slaughter the turkeys and clean them. Like who? Who's the engineer who just... Like, Who's the engineer who figured out how to take feathers off of turkeys in a mass-produced way? Right. If you want to take feathers off a turkey, you dip it in really hot water for a couple seconds. But who's the engineer who figured out how to do that on a massive scale? And then who made the machinery for that? Who installed it? Who maintains it? I don't know, but it happens all the time. And then who are the truckers who drove the turkeys to the distribution center and then figured out how to get them to the grocery store? And the people who work at the distribution center who figured out exactly how many turkeys need to go to each location. 
And those turkeys got there the week before Thanksgiving. No good to have a turkey at the grocery store today. No one wants it today. What's it? Was it November 28th? November 28th? If a, if a truckload of turkeys showed up on November 28th, might as well just throw them right in the trash. They had to show up at just the right time. How did that happen? I just hope as you uh, are consuming, if you didn't do it on Thanksgiving Day, right now, at least if you're consuming the leftovers, be extra grateful for all, not only the fact that it's there, but the people who made it happen. Because you can play that game with every food that you will be uh, eating for the next week or so uh, related to Thanksgiving. Wherever your turkey came from or where your sweet potatoes came from, they probably came from North Carolina. Cranberries probably came from Washington, maybe even New Jersey. That's where cranberries are grown. Oh, your turkey probably came from Minnesota. That's where most turkeys come from. That slice of pumpkin pie you had? Pumpkins come from Illinois. Nutmeg, that comes from India, of all places. Cinnamon comes from Vietnam. The ginger comes from Indonesia. And eggs, well, I get my eggs from a farm down the street my house. But think of where all the ingredients for all the food comes from, all over the world. And it's not just food. You can do that all day with, uh, I don't know, your dishes. Where'd your dishes come from? Your silverware, the napkins. I went to a friend's house the other day for Thanksgiving. They had mini Thanksgiving-themed napkins. Who made the ink that are used to make those napkins? And who made the machines that made those napkins? You notice there's no federal government department of Thanksgiving, right? No one oversees this. No one, did, no one told the farmers how many turkeys to, to make, raise, or uh, how many sweet potatoes to grow, or anything like that. But it all worked out. It's capitalism. It's amazing. <laughs> it really it just, it, it just blows my mind. So as you're uh, taking your uh, leftover turkey sandwich today... Uh, Take an extra minute to think about that. Uh, I want to play one last clip here to roll out with. This is the D.C. uh, police chief, Kathy Lanier. She was on 60 Minutes the other day. Clip 11. According to the FBI, 60% of active shooter attacks are over before police ever arrive. So now law enforcement agencies throughout the country are trying to educate the public on how to survive on their own. Your options are run, hide, or fight. That's what you tell people they should do? Yes. What we tell them is, is the facts of the matter is, is that most active shooters kill most of the victims in 10 minutes or less. And the best police department in the country is going to be about a five to seven minute response. I always say if you can get out, getting out's your first option, your best option. If you're in a position to try and take the gunman down, to take the gunman out, it's the best option for saving lives before police can get there. And that's, you know, that's kind of counterintuitive to what cops always tell people, right? We always tell people, don't, you know, don't take action, call 911, don't intervene in the robbery. You know, know, we've never told people take action. It's a different, this is a different scenario. You're telling them that now, though. We are. It's important to remember that as tragic and scary as these active shooter attacks are, it's highly unlikely you'll ever be caught up in one. A A person's chance of actually having some sort of encounter with an active shooter is like one in two million. A person's chance of being hit by lightning is one in 700,000. Do you worry about an overreaction? People getting too scared, fearful of something which, in all likelihood, they will never encounter. You can be prepared and you can have a society that is resilient and um, alert and conscientious and safer 
without scaring people. You don't want people to be afraid. No, that works against you. If you educate people on actions they can take to reduce their risk, then you can save some lives. And I think it's, it's irresponsible for us not to do that. Gosh, um, that's good. I'm not worried about an overreaction. I'm more worried about a numbness to what is potentially a reality. A numbness? Yes. How do you mean? Just ignoring it and not preparing yourself. That's not an option anymore. Gosh, that's so good. Did you ever think you'd hear a police chief say that? A Washington, D.C. police chief right there. Um, the former San Diego police chief, who has since retired, told me two years ago, three years ago, I've shared this a million times. I asked him, because he was in support of Diane Feinstein's gun regulations. And I said, well, what would you suggest someone do if there's a home invasion? And he said, call 911 and, make sure, and hide and make sure you give a good description of your house. So what are you talking about? I'm so sick of politicians and governments and bureaucracies wanting to weaken you, wanting to disarm you in multiple ways, as opposed to empowering you. And that's what the D.C. police chief wants. That's what that whole speech was right there, that whole interview. It was about empowering you. She says, I want a society not that's coddled and weak and hides. I want a society that's resilient, alert, conscientious educated and prepared like police departments across the country should be hosting concealed carry permit classes or at least gun safety classes for free there should be gun safety classes for anyone who wants to do it that's how you make a resilient educated and prepared uh, uh, citizenry i've said this before and i've i've heard other people say this now too that uh the reason there hasn't been another hijacking in America has nothing to do with TSA. It can't possibly have anything to do with TSA. 90% of weapons get through TSA screenings. 90%. The reason there hasn't been another hijacking in America is because the hijackers now know that the American people will not sit back and do nothing. They'll take the plane down like you know, like a Flight 93. The, first, the people who were on the first three planes, they had no idea what was going on on 9-11. But the people in United 93 knew that the terrorists were going to take down the plane. So they took it down on their own terms. So we know that now. So if anyone tries to take over the plane, that's it. That's it for them. And terrorists don't want to fight. So they avoid that. And I believe there's just the threat of a terrorist going to a mall or something and and doing whatever. Just the threat that there may be someone else there who has a gun who can fight back. I believe it's prevented terrorism so far in America. And I, I pray, and this, this sounds weird, but just know the, the heart that I have behind this. When there is a terrorist attack in America, because there will be, I, I pray that it's thwarted by civilians. Just like the Americans on that train in Paris. Or whatever it looks like. I hope it's thwarted by civilians. Because then terrorists will know from this point forward that in the United States of America, because we are a free people, a resilient, alert, conscientious, educated, and prepared people, there's no such thing as a soft target. Hope you have a great rest of your weekend, Cider Crusaders, and we'll see you next Saturday. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network.